We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Welcome to another edition of Soft Talk Radio. I'm Joe Quinn. With me in the studio this week again are Neil Bradley, Pierre Lescaudron, Jason Martin, and historian and author Laura Nydiacic. This week we are going to be continuing our investigation into Julius Caesar and who he really was. Many interesting personalities have emerged during the last days of Rome's Republic, but one man stood head and shoulders above the rest. That man was Julius Caesar. Caesar emerged at a time of political intrigues, civil war and rebellion. Standing for social justice, inclusive democracy and economic empowerment of the people, Caesar sought to transform the conditions of the lives of ordinary people. But he encountered tremendous resistance from the ruling oligarchy, whose efforts to thwart him culminated in his assassination at the height of his power in 44 BC. Caesar's legacy is a mixed one. Was he really the tyrannical demagogue portrayed by Cicero and other contemporary historians? Or must his deeds be re-examined in light of the discovery by Francesco Cotta and others that his life and achievements were the model for the story of Jesus. That's our topic this week. It is a continuation of last week. If you haven't listened to last week's show, <clears throat> you should do so, because we got into a lot of details there, a kind of a preamble, uh, where we discussed um, the kind of corruption of history and the historical record in general as a lead-in to this rather shocking idea that Julius Caesar was, in fact, Jesus Christ. So, without further ado, <clears throat> let's have at it with our panel of experts. I believe Laura has something to say before, uh, after she introduces herself or says hello. Hello, everybody. Um, no, I didn't get the super soaker out of the barn to zap these guys when they interrupt me, so... You should. Because I thought, you know, it's kind of useful when they help me remember things because well, basically I've got slave labor going on here because I've got everybody reading everything they can possibly get their hands on about Caesar. I have a shock collar for Pierre. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, there, there there's uh, I, I, two, four, there's just five it. people in this room, you know. I mean, we, everybody gets uh, a turn to talk, you know. Yeah. Well, that's not what people have been writing to me. Everybody can talk, just not interrupt each other all at once. Right, right. But then, if people don't obey the uh, the pause method of letting other people know that they can interject at this point, if they just continue with a nonstop stream of uh, of verbiage, then nobody can say anything. So there's a way that that rule just basically is like saying, "Shut up." Yep. Okay. 
All joking aside, what has become increasingly clear to me as I'm digging through everything I can get my hands on about Julius Caesar is that Western civilization has been presented with a really distorted picture. Now, if you remember last week, we were talking about the obvious uh, manipulation of history that uh, took place in respect of Edward II and Edward III of England, where Edward II was supposedly murdered in a horrible way, but it didn't actually happen. Only nobody knew that until several hundred years later. And then what I myself discovered, which was this huge gap in the history of the Eastern Roman Empire that suddenly appeared magically in the history of Gregory of Tours. I mean, how amazing. There's exactly the same gap existing in the East as exists in the West. Anyway, so we know that history is being deliberately uh, manipulated and that generally the manipulation is done by those in power for their particular goals and agendas. And that was true during the time of Caesar, just as it is now. I mean, even now we see history being rewritten as it happens in our current affairs, daily events. And how much goes on at such things like, you know, Bilderberger meetings or Skull and Bones and in the hallowed halls of government when, you know, we have no access to what these people are doing. I mean, you file Freedom of Information Act requests and they get denied. Uh, uh, Decisions are made. I mean, whistleblowers nowadays are supposedly revealing these amazing uh, revelations about everybody being spied on. This guy Snowden and and Julian Assange and WikiLeaks and so on and so forth. You know, none of this is new. I mean, it's it's just as awful as it was in those times past. So the problem is, is that Caesar has been presented to us in our history and in literature as kind of a a negative republic-destroying evil dictator who had this uh, insatiable lust for power, uh, destroyed all of Gaul, which, you know, when you actually read the stories and figure things out, you find that it's not entirely true. Um, And one of the worst uh, representations is that that was presented by uh, Shakespeare in his play about Julius Caesar. Uh, he kind of ends the play with the with the idea that Brutus was a noble Roman. Mm-hmm. Brutus was the vilest of betrayers in history. He was truly Judas. He was the, he was an usurer who. Uh... Lent money at exorbitant interest, I think forty eight percent to the Cyprians or something oh, yeah. like that, and then and then demanded of the Senate to lend him legionnaires so he could extort them by force when they couldn't pay it back. So that's that's how wonderful a guy Brutus was. About the the similarities Brutus and Judah, Carota shows that uh, phonetically it seems quite uh, far away, Judas from. Uh, uh, Brutus, but actually the full name of Brutus was Decimus Junius Brutus, Junius, and from Junius to Judas, there's uh, already uh, a uh, smaller gap for the yeah. transposition. That's true. 
Yeah, Judas versus it was it was Eunice versus Judas. Eunice. Yes. And the difference between D and N in Greek is actually one stroke. Yeah. The, you the see, they've been doing their research. Delta, a triangle shape, and new, which is new, which yeah, is uh, which only is, two strokes. Yeah, but it it's like the delta, but without the bottom stroke. Exactly. You know, it's an inverted V. So someone could easily misread the names. Easily. But how and why the Gospels got transposed is kind of not what we're looking at here. I want to kind of talk about Julius Caesar. And in order to talk about Caesar, I think we need to understand something about the time in which he lived. And we're going to have to do a little bit of imagining here. I mean, we know some things, but some other things we're going to have to imagine just a little bit. Um, As you know from reading my book, Horns of Moses, and as well as many of my articles that have been published on the Internet and elsewhere. Uh, I'm theorizing along with many other people, I'm not the only person who's saying this, uh, that the Greek Dark Ages was caused by cometary cataclysms, uh, possibly asteroids, meteorites. It depends upon which expert is writing about it or theorizing about it. But there is pretty good evidence that there was some really disastrous cosmic events going on Uh, starting about 1200 B.C., and uh, things didn't start to come back out of the darkness until about 800 B.C. And just remember when we're dealing with B.C., it's kind of of weird because you're counting backwards down to one. So whenever, uh, you know, it's kind of easy to get a little confused there. So from 1200 to 800 B.C. is like 400 years forward. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not Mm -hmm. like it's it's not like counting Mm -hmm. from zero to uh, to 100 or 800. Okay, so during that period of time, somewhere, somehow, uh, some literature emerged uh, of which the main piece that we have extant is the Odyssey and the Iliad of Homer. A little bit later, possibly very close in time, uh, we have uh, Works and Days and Theogony, and uh, then... Various things happened, as I described in the book Horns of Moses, you know, that led to the uh, ideas of various philosophers in the Greek classical period. And what is pretty clear is that these people were recreating civilization in their minds. They were reestablishing what was law, what should be law, what wasn't law, how to live, how to create a society, how to manage a city. And this is really kind of odd and interesting because prior to this Dark Age, there had been these rather enormous and extensive uh, civilizations, uh, Babylon, uh, the Hittites, uh, the Mitannians, Egypt, uh, you know, all over Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent, and then in Egypt, uh, the Sumerians way way back. So they had had these cities, they had had these empires, sometimes their empires extended over vast areas. And they clearly knew how to do stuff because they were doing it. So why was it so important after the end of the Greek Dark Ages for people to start figuring out how to do things again? Obviously because they had forgotten. So many people had been killed. The population had been so reduced either by climate stress, weather, uh, by uh, volcanic eruptions, maybe by asteroid impacts, you know, small ones or... Uh, 
uh, cometary overhead explosions. Uh, the big theory now is the overhead cometary explosion of the Tunguska type and also the kind that just recently uh, occurred in Russia. Can we have that clip again? <laughs> I just got to do this. Yeah, <clears throat> we want to hear it. a lot of that happening I mean just a lot of it because what it does is it basically kills people it ablates the landscape it can probably deposit all kinds of microorganisms on the planet you know viral type things that can survive in space bringing plagues it can deposit a lot of dust in the atmosphere which can then cool the atmosphere uh, the upper, you know create a veil in the atmosphere uh, block out the sun, uh, destroy the crops, create famines. You know, famines make people more susceptible to plagues. If the thing brings a plague with it, then that's even, you know, so you've basically got 80 to 90% mortality rate, and a lot of people did. So what happens then is you have little pockets of survival. And you can almost say it's not survival of the fittest, it's survival of, of the, the lucky, lucky. Because it's it's pretty much accidental who's going to survive. Um so when people start recreating uh, systems where they can live together, it began with the family. And here I'm going to defer to Pierre because he's made a pretty good study of this uh, of this work of Numa Fustel de Collange's uh, work, The Ancient City, where he takes all of the ancient literary references to their beliefs their laws, their customs, their rituals, etc. And he examines them, puts himself in the mindset of who, you know, what kind of person can believe in these things? What kind of, you know, what kind of society would give rise to these kinds of beliefs? And he explains, you know, what the Romans believed. So, Pierre, you want to give us a quick rundown on on how they how you know the father, the, uh, the primogeniture, and uh, marriage customs, and the, re- the the basic religion of the Roman, the Roman Empire. This is the religion that continued to exist right down to the time of Caesar. So this is important to understand Caesar's mindset. Yeah, first let let me remove the shock from my mouth, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's much better, and. Um, <clears throat> Before talking about Fustel religion, just one point uh, about the survival of the luckiest in uh, in Caesar um, uh, wars of wars of Gaul. It's mentioned that the Germanic people were eating mostly meat uh, by comparison to Roman people who were eating mostly wheat. And in addition, Caesar mentioned that uh, German people were bathing from the earliest earliest age in vehicle water. Uh, interestingly, after the 6th century AD event that raised most of uh, history for three centuries, the people who emerged, the pocket of survival emerged the most, who survived the best, 
where those Germanic tribes or the survivors for those Germanic tribes. So yes, survival the luckiest overall year, but there might be some nutritional factor that uh, mitigate the impact of such uh, cataclysm. Okay, so I'll close the bracket. Now, Fustel, uh, <coughs> ancient city. Basically, Fustel discovered that uh, initially the predominating, predominating religion was based on, uh, on the family. Each family, or some family, had a god, a personal god, a house god. They had a altar, they had sacrifice, they had a fire to which they were giving, showing respect to their god. And the gods actually were the ancestors. The belief was that the ancestors, once they die, actually they don't really die, you put them in the ground, and that's why on their tomb you put every day wine, flowers, food, so they can survive underground by consuming those offerings. Well, that's the first step. The second step that Fustel shows is that all the fundamentals of the society, the legal aspects, financial aspects, property aspects, matrimonial aspects, are defined by this religion. We're not into the world of rationality, objectivity, we are in a 100% irrational, religious, faith-based world. Now, you can start to see in this religious model the beginning of a fundamental split in society. Because as I said in the beginning, on one side you have the families who had, who made up a local cult, and you had the ones who had no cult. And as from this duality that later few centuries later in Rome, you would see this duality between the optimates, the senates, the families, the powerful families, who have all the power, political, social, religious, legal, financial, property, they can marry, they can do everything. And on the other side, you have the plebeians. The plebeians come from families who don't have a local god, a house god. And plebeians have absolutely no right. They cannot marry, they can be beaten, they can be killed, they cannot go to court, they cannot be defended, they cannot own a house, they cannot work in the proper sense of the term. They actually have even less rights than the slaves because the slaves are affiliated to the house god of their masters. So basically, that's the source, that's the, the paradigm, that's the model of society from which the Roman society was in inspired. It's really kind of bizarre when you think about it, because I tried to imagine in my in my own mind what could give rise to something like this. And the only thing that occurred to me was that during a period of massive death and destruction with all of these kinds of things, like we just heard exploding, you know, at least coming along regularly with the kinds of crazy weather we're experiencing ourselves nowadays uh, happening fairly frequently, uh, you know, massive uh, downpours or uh, hails of ice, uh, you know, different kinds of really frightening things that uh, people would have been quite terrified and they have been would have been trying different things, you know, kind of like pushing different buttons to see which combination made things work. And so maybe by some accident, some person did something. They... Uh, 
you know, poured some wine on the ground and said, you know, bless you, my grandfather. And shortly thereafter, the rain stopped or or the uh, earthquake stopped or whatever. And so they came up with the idea that this is this is what's going to work. We have to honor the ancestors. Um, obviously, fire was kind of the primary god of the Romans, interestingly enough, uh, because the each family had this uh, had this altar, this hearth inside the home, and everything focused around this fire. You couldn't allow uh, evil people, you know, outsiders to look at the fire or be around the fire, because if they did, they would insult the fire god because fire was alive. And if the if the gods got insulted, you'd get another one of these overhead boom booms going on. So there was it was really intense for them to obey the different uh, methods that they developed to control their environment to keep the gods from killing them, because it's pretty clear that they were that these kinds of ideas could only develop in an environment where there was that kind of terror where. Uh, People could really, really be convinced that, you know, if we don't appease our ancestors, they're going to come up from the ground and they're going to haunt us because that was one of their beliefs, that if you don't appease the ancestors, they come out of the grave and they become uh, wandering spirits, you know, kind of like uh, kind of like vampires or something. And the other the other belief was, was that if you appeased your ancestors properly, uh, then they could help you. That you know, if you went into battle, you weren't just going into battle alone because your ancestors were there with you. So you had to not only take care of the ancestors, you also had to take care of them, you know, for even fearful reasons. So it was really, really an intense belief system. And from this belief system, all of the uh, laws and customs of Rome developed. It's it's. Uh, Probably one of the more fascinating studies you'll ever read if you read Fustel de Collange, uh, The Ancient City. So, oh, go ahead. Yeah, actually, when you read this book, something that uh, becomes really obvious is first they were aware of, of a, some kind of human cosmic connection. That what we do here, human beings on Earth, has an influence on cosmic events, cataclysm. However, a twist happened somewhere and they focused all their efforts on what we can call today superstitions. Before any decision, they were checking the omens with bones, liver, the wind, the birds, whatever. And actually, most of the law, most of, the, what, the, most of what transpired from the spiritual world, their religion to the temporal world, their law, the, the way they manage money, property, was transferred to the superstition. If one day, I don't know, you see a, a bird flying to the left, and you and you 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 don't manage to sell your house or you 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 don't make a good deal, you can end up with having a law that states when birds fly to the left, nobody no business, well, no deal can be done. It kind of it strikes me as. In, in terms of trying to answer that question of what could have produced these, this kind of rather bizarre and really, you know, okay, all religious beliefs tend to be a bit illogical, but this one is a bit out there, if you know what it I mean. Was, but, it was extreme. But it, it, it seems to me that it, it might have been uh, the product of, of, you know, almost desperation. You it know, was, at, a time, yes, at a time when absolutely. people were just 
out of their minds with, oh my God, we got to do something about this. Let's come up with something, anything. And that led to the kind of thing that's peer, that Pierre just But it, it seems enough. like by the time of Caesar that this had developed to be a little bit more sophisticated than is being described. By the time of Caesar, this was established more as a as a state thing and not – I mean, there, of course, there was still the house. Well, I'm going to get to that. I'm just going to get to that. Just hang on. Hang okay. on. Because what happened was, was that groups of families with these particularly family god beliefs that – you can only a descendant can feed the ancestors. In other words, you can't you can't feed somebody else's ancestors because that service that duty belongs to the family, uh, and only somebody who had a worship and who could remember their ancestors all the way back to some heroic being, you know, were considered to be. Um, people who had a real religion. You had to have gotten this from your ancestors. You had to be had to able to... A, an exceptional person in your, in your family history. Well, that yeah. Was widely renowned and... So at some point in time, and this is something that I've really thought about a lot, at some point in time, uh, a bunch of people got together and they all said, uh, okay, I have, a, I have a family religion and my ancestor was Hercules. And the other one, mine was Venus and blah, blah, blah. So you know that these people were all freaking lying because mm-hmm. they they had these faked genealogies. This was a very popular pastime in ancient Greece, by the way. So the Romans were just kind of imitating what was already going on. And so they said, okay, we are the ones who have the ancestors, and we all ultimately go back to this one uh main ancestor who then, you know, like the main god who had godly children and then uh, cohabited with human beings. So so in a funny sort of way, it sounds like something that you get in the Bible, you know, that in those days the sons of God, you know, intermarried with the daughters of men and they were mighty men, men of renown. So this is kind of what you're what you're getting here. It's represented throughout history, the same practice. Yeah, the it's the same thing. Modern times. Actually, you, you, here you have the embryo of the Greek city-state and of, uh, of Rome, the city of Rome, because when those families were checking their genealogy, fake or, or true, probably fake, they, sometimes they were seeing common hero, common ancestor, because probably to make the genealogy, they were tapping into uh, pagan or old traditions. For example, Apollo was present in many genealogies. So when two families, at the time before the city, the family was the only social structure. Everybody else was totally foreign because you didn't have the same law, you didn't have the same property, you didn't have some, the same religion, so it was a totally fragmented society, family-based, Well, there's else. also a reason for that, too, is that a family um, trying to survive in those kinds of harsh conditions, uh, you know, anybody out there when there's not a lot of food available, not a lot of resources, would be an enemy. So right. this became kind of a religious belief that that uh, uh, codified the way things were, which was that outsiders out there are marauders. They're going to come into our family compound. They're going to steal our stuff, steal our women, kill the men, and, you know, boom. So uh, that was the reality on the ground, and so the beliefs kind of uh, reflected that. We have a family worship. You know, all the men in our family were all connected to the same ancestor. We all support each other. Uh, it was kind of like, uh, you know, it was like it was a tribal thing. And then you find somebody, as Pierre was saying, who has 
you know, you've created your genealogy and then you find another group that has a genealogy and their genealogy goes back to Hercules or Apollo. Oh, well, we're distant cousins, therefore we can intermarry with your group. And then they found another tribe. And, and, and the thing about this was is there were these traveling salvation show guys that were going around. I'm going to discuss those at some length in the next book, so just hang on for that. It's too too detailed to get into. But they would go around and provide these genealogies. They would get paid. They would get fed. They would get uh, special benefits. They would perform cleansing actions to, you know, if the family was having bad luck, if they were having uh, being attacked, the traveling Salvation Show guy would come in, the uh, soothsayer or whatever, and he would make everything right, tell them the, the formula for their worship, then he would travel on to the next group. So this is how they had some kind of a connection with each other. So what happened was a group of them got together, and they all had the same ancestor 25 generations back or something, say Hercules. And they said, okay, well, we're going to form a pact, and we're going to uh, allow intermarriage within our groups. Anybody and everybody else outside of our groups, of our families, of our collective families, are outsiders. They do not have a worship. They are dangerous. They must be excluded. They must be uh, you know, completely ignored. They can't be admitted to our fellowship. And uh, that's how Rome was formed. And at this, yeah, that's exactly how Rome was formed. Rome was formed by depending on the source, 30 or 100 families that claim the same ancestors, descendants of Remus, Romulus, uh, Quintilus, whatever. But at this time, you still have the religion that defines all the rest of the life. So you have those 100 families in Rome who control all the property, all the money, all the business, all the social matters, economic matters, and legal matters. Most importantly, they were the citizens and only they and only the people that they decided could be citizens could be citizens. And being a citizen meant you had a part in the worship of one of these uh, patrician families. They call them patrician because from pater for father. So anybody who was not a member of the patrician families did not have a worship and was therefore not able to be a citizen because this issue of citizenship is going to be play a really big part in what happened during the time of Caesar. Now, I've often speculated that you know where the Romans originally came from, and, and I think I mentioned it last week that uh, you know I kind of kind of set my sights on on the Assyrian Empire because there are so many things uh, about the Romans found in the archaeology that relate to the Assyrian Empire. And this all started happening probably about 600 BC when trade began to expand and when the Assyrian Empire collapsed. Because when the Assyrian Empire collapsed, you can imagine refugees leaving going to find a new place to live, and then they show up, you know, they, they sail through the Mediterranean, they, they show up along the coast of Italy, and they go there, and then uh, they establish contacts with different people. Or, uh, But the thing is, is that in the archaeology, you find these livers that they used for uh, divination. For divination. The same model livers are found in the Roman areas and in the Etruscan areas and so forth, as were found 
created and found in the Assyrian areas. And these may even have gone back before the Dark Age to the Babylonians, to the Sumerians, possibly even to the Hittites, whatever. So, so anyhow, they had this, this intense terror of the environment. If there was thunder, all business had to stop. Every single thing you did of any importance whatsoever required the augur to give you the uh the you know kind of your daily horoscope and it's it's recorded that every senator who went to the senate house to sit in on a senatorial meeting of some kind of importance or whatever caesar included they stopped at the door of the senate and they sacrificed now this doesn't mean that they personally did it but it was kind of like you know there was a little booth installed there and there was some guy probably had a little pin. Sacrifices, get your sacrifices here. Yeah, yeah. So they had a pin, and it was full of lambs and birds, and probably pigs and cows or whatever. Depending on the importance of the occasion, you could get you know the bigger the critter, the more important the occasion, or vice versa. So you you stopped on your way in to do your business. Now imagine this happening in in Congress in the United States that the senators or the congressmen go to sit in on a session to discuss laws. And before they can go in the door, they have to stop, and somebody takes a lamb, slits its throat, cuts its belly open, takes its liver out, and says, uh, yeah, you're going to have a good day, sir. You know, uh, here's your ticket. Just go right on in there. And that's what they were actually doing. I'm not kidding. I wonder if uh, nowadays they have a drone strike and then a Senate hearing. Yeah. I wonder if... I wonder if uh... The holy water font uh, on the, at the entrance to Catholic churches, you know, where you're traditionally, as you walk in the door, you're meant to dip your hand in and bless yourself. There's some watered-down, no pun intended, version of that, you know, because anybody who walks into a Catholic church immediately on the left or right. Well, that's that's possibly dip. very very closely related. It was it was a thing to do. To I mean, sometimes you would have your sacrifice. You'd do your sacrifice at home, which meant that probably everybody had to have a little collection of critters. That they were, you know, daily butchering. There's no evidence of any smearing of the blood of, of these animals on anybody, is there? I don't think so. No. I don't know if they were every single day, you know, killing some animal or something like that. Actually, they were. Read the history. There was this was this was so ubiquitous and so daily an event. I mean, it's like I mean, you'd, you'd every day. Every day you had to take the augurs. Yeah, well, the, the, because these are two different things. Amongst various kinds of augurs, you have the sacrifice. But there were many other kinds of augurs. They were checking bones yeah. sometimes, they were checking the weather, the birds, the way they yeah. were flying. You'd run the out of sun, animals pretty quick. The stars, the moon. But well, they ate them. That was how they got their meat for the day. And they gave it to oh, the ancestors. Well, they had to feed the ancestors as well. And so they put it in the, they burn it or put it in the ground. But really, one of the most striking ideas that transpired from this book is that. Every single decision made by people at this time was conditioned by ogres, by those superstitions. And another point that right. is worth mentioning is that in this ancient religion, you have the seeds of patriarchalism. Uh, the father, the, the man, the leader of the family, had all powers. He could kill if he wanted. Any member of his family was not accountable in front of any uh, a legal organization, any court. He had all powers. 
unlimited and there was not one single counterpower. Which is an interesting so, which is an interesting point for, for considering later on with the, the Roman hatred of parricide. Which is, ex- which is an extreme crime. Yeah, of, yeah, of course. And at the same time, you realize that when you see in Rome 100 optimate families ruling, ruling an empire that accounts tens of millions of people, maybe hundreds of millions of people, you understand that you've made, quite involuntary, but you've reached the perfect oligarchy. You have 100 families on the top, and hundreds of the million at the bottom, and the difference between the top and the and the bottom is total. Yeah, well, yeah we got to get there though. We got to get there. We, we, let's proceed a little bit more slowly instead of jumping ahead here, because what happened was Rome created this little city, and back in those days, Rome was not the Rome we know today. It was uh, basically what you'd consider an Indian fort in the Wild West. You know, it was like a wooden fort with palisades and so forth, and and earthworks and everything inside was pretty much built out of wood. Uh, oh, at a fairly early stage, they started using tufa, which is kind of a volcanic block that was easy to cut. So they were using that to build walls later on. Um, but what they did was, essentially, the only people who really lived in the city were the families, the optimate, what the, what later came to be called the optimate families, the patrician families. And who were the other people, the plebeians? The plebeians were people who lived around there, you know, shopkeepers. They were uh, artisans of various sorts. They were laborers. They were shoemakers. They were this, that, the other. They were everybody who did anything uh, that didn't belong to the optimate or the patrician families. So there were quite a lot of them. Um, As time went by... uh, what the Romans did was they began to conquer their neighbors. They began to take over other cities and take their stuff. And sometimes they would put, you know, uh, they would put Roman citizens, you know, because they started having a lot of kids in these families. So they needed new cities to run. So they would put some of their kids over in this fam- uh, city and some in another place. And then they would uh, create the same system there. So as t- – go ahead. Yeah, and – when an army, Roman army, was beating another army, all the citizens on the on the side that lost the battle were losing their religion, the altar. So it means a mass, along with the Roman victories, a massive inflow of plebeians who didn't have a religion because their religion was destroyed. Um, there was another thing about it was that in the early days the only people who were allowed to be soldiers in the army were the were citizens you know people who had a certain amount of property because they looked down on these other people so much that they weren't even you know they didn't even figure out yet that you know hey we need to use them for soldiers whatever but anyhow i want to uh give you a little bit from appian because Appian talks about this, and he builds up the situation that existed at the time that Caesar himself was born. So, you know, bear with me. I'm going to make a few comments. Everybody else will probably make a few comments. But I'm going to give you some stuff directly from Appian, who was a Greek historian about during the time of Augustus thereafter. So Appian writes, The plebeians and senate of Rome, remember the senate 
was composed only of patricians, were often at strife with each other concerning the enactment of laws, the canceling of debts, the division of lands, or the election of magistrates. Internal discord did not, however, however, bring them to blows. There were dissensions merely and contests within the limits of the law. However, once when the plebeians were entering in on a campaign, they fell into a controversy, but they did not use weapons, but withdrew to the hill, which from that time on was called the sacred mount. So this is what happened. You know, when, they, when the plebeians decided that they were being mistreated by the senatorial class, instead of getting into a battle, what they did is they just withdrew. They stopped giving any services. They stopped, you know, making uh, making shoes. They stopped uh, uh, being blacksmiths. They stopped making clothes. They stopped serving food. They stopped, you know, basically everything. Yeah, the time most of the work is provided by the plebeians. So they just simply withdrew from the city, stopped doing anything for the senatorial class from the patricians, and so that's what happened. And they re- they withdrew. And so that was when they instituted the office of the tribune because the people demanded that they should have tribunes, you know, or representatives to represent their interests. So they created a magistrate for their protection, called him the tribune of the plebs, to serve as a check on the consuls who were chosen by the Senate so that political power should not be exclusively in their hands. So at this point, from this, there was a lot of bitterness because the magistrates became even more animositous towards each other and things went on and at a certain point in time, the uh, the plebs began to demand, you know, more and more rights. And this, you know, they were, they were suffering because as Pierre just said, you know, there's Tens of thousands, maybe even millions of them were there, and this oligarchy still ran everything. So along came Tiberius Gracchus. Tiberius Gracchus was the first to fall victim to internal commotion, and with him, many others who were crowded together at the capital around the temple were also slain. Tiberius tried to institute land reform. And up to this point in time, according to the history, we don't know how true it is, nobody, there'd been no armed conflict. But then when Tiberius Gracchus threatened their, you know, their precious uh, land situation, um, things got a little bit violent. Senators actually, you know, picked up cudgels and stuff and beat them to death. And it was a very hot topic, the land, because it was not only the source of income, where you grow crops, um, it was only the land, it was only the ground where your ancestors were buried, where your God was. So attributing the land to people who didn't have, who didn't worship a family God, who were not part of the families, it was a, a major religious breach. Yeah, well, what happened was, was that after Rome had conquered and assimilated uh, the, the cities of Latium, the area that surrounded it, then they got together and decided that having the Carthaginians really close down there in the Greek and Punic area of the island of Sicily was not acceptable because they wanted it. 
And there was a long thing called the Punic Wars. These The Punic Wars went on for, you know, 100 years, 200 years, whatever, supposedly. They just kept fighting with the uh, Carthaginians, and finally they defeated them. But what happened during the course of these wars is every time they had a war, not only did they get a lot of stuff, booty, as they call it, you know, the spoils of war. Part of the spoils of war were massive numbers of slaves. And the fact is that the large-scale use of slaves in Roman society came about because of the internal economic uh, demands. Uh, Slaves were preferred as a source of labor because the tremendous external advantages that the Roman state reaped from its conquests of the Mediterranean and this conquest of the Mediterranean eliminated the serious competitors for power, and this was all done by the mid-2nd century. The influx of wealth that resulted from these conquests and the internal demands for larger-scale agricultural production because they had to feed these people provoked the emergence of what could be called a new entrepreneurial economy based on slaves. The great wealth derived from Rome's Mediterranean conquest was concentrated into the hands of, guess who? Uh, The patricians, that very small number of Romans. They expended it on luxury goods, and most important, they purchased large, large tracts of land. And then the thing was, was at a certain point in their history, they had actually started using plebeians for soldiers, And what they did to the plebeians when they were using them for soldiers was they would take them off to fight these Carthaginian or these Punic Wars, and then they would come back and they would lose their land because they were no they were not able to pay the loans that they had to take out before they went to war to buy their equipment to fight the war with. So they bought equipment to fight the war, went off to fight the war, came back, couldn't pay back the loans, and then their land was lost to the senatorial class. So uh, and also. At the same time that this was happening, these Roman senatorial class type people were bringing back these large number of slaves because it just seemed so obvious to them. I mean, geez, you know, slaves paid labor, slaves paid labor. Oh, God, the decision is so hard. I can't make up my mind. And, of course, they went for slave labor because you don't have to pay slaves. And, of course, if you're not paying anybody, then the people who owned all the other little tracts of land lost their land because they weren't getting any pay to pay you back the money you were lending them to buy their outfits to go off and fight your wars for you. So they had a pretty good deal going on here. The senators, the patrician class of Rome, simply acquired human beings and bought and sold them like pieces of movable property. And the most intensive development of what is called agrarian slavery, known in the ancient world, actually began in Rome. The most extreme form of this slave agriculture was located at the very heart of the Roman Empire. Now, this is a little bit different from the slave economy that developed in the 16th century and the Western civilization. Um, because what happened then was they were getting slaves and they were importing them to places on the outside or the fringes of the empire or places that were being newly settled and using them as as slaves to develop undeveloped land or to create colonies or whatever. What Rome did was it went out and got them and brought them home. So probably by the time of uh by the time of Caesar oh anywhere between 30 and 50% 
of the population of the entire Italian peninsula were slaves, maybe even more, may have been 60%. Nearly every, I mean, and you had this small oligarchy, and then you had a few freedmen and a, yeah? Yeah, it means citizens are maybe one, at the time of Caesar, citizens are maybe 1% of the population of the Roman Empire. 99% are people without rights or with barely any rights. Interestingly, no matter what the ethnicity of the various slaves, and they were bringing them from uh, Eastern Mediterranean, they were bringing them down from Thrace, they were bringing them from Gaul, they were bringing them from North Africa. They called them all Syrians because uh, Syrians was kind of like a degrading term that they used. So what happened with this empire that was driven by slaves was they had slave wars. Uh the first slave war started in Sicily, interesting, and it lasted from 135 to 132 B.C. Now, remember, Caesar is born in 100 B.C., so this is like 35 years before he was born. Of course, if you believe some experts, he may have been born in 102, so he had, was just a little bit older, but anyhow, it's close enough. The second slave war was from 104 to 100 B.C., and in both of these slave wars, there were charismatic slave commanders who led the forces, uh, in one case, it was called Eunice and Cleon, and the other one was Athenion and Salvius. The last of the three great slave wars was fought in southern Italy between 73 and 71 B.C. because Caesar was already born now. But let's go back to Appian and get there because we've got to remember these slave wars are going on in the background of what's <coughs> happening in Rome. So... Slave wars are going on, and Tiberius Gracchus is also trying to get land for all of the people. And they murdered him. So he says here, Repeatedly the parties came into open conflict, often carrying daggers, and from time to time in the temples or the assemblies or the forum, some tribune or praetor or consul or candidate for those offices or some person otherwise distinguished would be slain. Unseemly violence prevailed almost constantly, together with shameful contempt for law and justice. No unseemly deed was left undone until about 50 years after the death of Gracchus. Cornelius Sulla, one of the chiefs of factions, doctoring one evil with another, made himself the sole master of the state for a very long time. Such officials were formerly called dictators, an office created in the most perilous emergencies for six months only and long since fallen into disuse. But Sulla, although nominally elected, became dictator for life by force and compulsion. Nevertheless, he became satiated with power and was the first man, so far as I know, holding supreme power who had the courage to lay it down voluntarily and to declare that he would render an account of his stewardship to any who were dissatisfied with it. Obviously, nobody had the... Uh, cojones to be dissatisfied with Sulla. <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, Sulla at the same time um, made a massive purge amongst his opponents. He, he created an atmosphere of terror, so it's easy to say that uh, he's willing to listen to his opponents and to to be open-minded. While at the same time, he's killing massively uh, his uh, all his enemies. 
Yeah, so anyhow, the Romans, as they subdued the Italian peoples successively in war, seized parts of their lands, built towns, enrolled colonists of their own to occupy those already existing, and their idea was to use these as outposts. But of the land acquired by war, they assigned the cultivated part to the colonists or sold or leased it. Since they had no leisure as yet to allot the part with which lay desolated by war, this was generally the greater part, they made proclamation that in the meantime, anybody who was willing to work might do so on the ruined land if they would turn over 10% of their produce to the Senate. So they did these things in order to multiply the Italian race, which they considered the most laborious of peoples, so that they might have plenty of allies at home. But the very opposite thing happened. For the rich, getting possession of the greater part of the undistributed lands and being emboldened by the lapse of time to believe that they would never be dispossessed, absorbing any adjacent strips, their poor neighbors, partly by purchase, under persuasion, and partly by force, came to own vast tracts instead of single estates, using the slaves as laborers. The ownership of slaves brought them great gain from the multitude of their progeny, who increased because they were exempt from military service. Now, this is another interesting point here, because for the most part, most of the military service was undertaken by the citizens and their offspring. It wasn't until later that they allowed anybody else to come and be part of the war or part of the part of the army. And as a result, since they were excluding all of the poor people, the plebeians, slaves, etc., uh, from their warlike activities, they were killing themselves off. Now, how bright does that sound to you? They were they were killing off their own population because they refused to admit anybody else to their franchise of being a citizen. Mm-hmm. And then they reached a point with the growth of the Roman Empire where the Roman army was amounting to 100,000 to 200,000 soldiers, according to, to the sources. So they basically they reached a point where they couldn't have all soldiers coming from the, the citizen families. So they are to open the doors and uh, admit slaves, plebeians. Uh, Freedmen, whatever. whatever. So it says, thus, certain powerful men became extremely rich and the race of slaves multiplied throughout the country while the Italian people dwindled in numbers and in strength and the ordinary Italian people, the ones who weren't slaves, became oppressed by penury, taxes, and military service. Now, the Senate, this brilliant body of great minds that you know is so haloed in our history, couldn't figure out how to fix this. Mm-hmm. Appian says, they did not perceive any remedy, for it was not easy, nor in any way just, to deprive men of so many possessions that they had held for so long. A law was at last passed with difficulty at the instance of the tribunes that nobody should hold more than 500 uh, ugera of this land, and that was about 330 acres, or pasture on it more than 100 cattle or 500 sheep. To ensure the observance of this law, it was provided also that there should be a certain number of freemen employed on the farms whose business it should be to watch and report what was going on. So they actually did pass some kind of a land law, and this was in 367. It's called the Licinian Law. Having thus comprehended all this in a law, they took an oath over and above the law and fixed penalties for violating it, and it was supposed to be that the remaining land would soon be divided among the poor in small parcels. 
but there was not the smallest consideration shown for the law or the oaths. The few who seemed to pay some respect to them conveyed their lands to their relations fraudulently, but the greater part disregarded it altogether. Gee, does that sound like modern-day times or what? Finally, Gracchus, as I mentioned before, came along, and he delivered eloquent discourses and tried to pass a land law, and then he was murdered because this was so extremely disturbing to the rich. So Appian writes about that, and he goes on. Um, they would uh, the uh, senators would get up there and make, they'd make speeches, and they would recount the military services they had rendered by which this very land had been acquired. And they were angry that they should be robbed of their share of the common property. So then the the freedmen and the slaves come along and they say exactly the same thing. They reproach the rich for employing slaves who were always faithless and ill-disposed and for that reason unserviceable in war instead of freemen, citizens, and soldiers. So they all got aggravated with each other and there were disturbances and people were fighting in the streets And the fact is that the Romans possessed most of their territory by conquest, and things got on, and it went worse and worse. And then the Marius came along, and he was trying to pass another agrarian land law, and he took over. And then Sulla came along and restored the Senate to their full power, and there were proscriptions. And Maybe at this point we can emphasize that the old Roman Empire is based on one fundamental dynamic, this expansion armies gain territories in land, it's more people to feed, you need more land, more slaves, so you conquer more, so you have more people to uh, to feed, so the, the, the farming, the land, and the army as the two, are the two foundations on which the Roman Empire expansion is based, and you need both to go, and the problem is that it's a never-ending race. You always need more, more soldiers, bigger territory, more land. Anyway, so proscriptions were basically kill lists that were post posted up, and basically, yeah. So what? It just it really got it really got ugly, and what ended up happening was that the city of Rome was basically a Chicago a Chicago style gang war. All day long, all night long, week after week, month after month, year after year, with one person or another, because Sulla, you know, kind of set the precedent. He went off to fight a war, and then he heard that these people who were going to pass agrarian laws had taken over. So he brings his army back, and he marches on Rome and puts up these proscription lists. And basically it says, you know, if you kill this man, you will not have committed a crime. You bring his head, you'll get a reward. And... That's, uh, just to draw a little comparison to today, it, it strikes me that that's very similar to uh, what Obama is doing with uh, with drone strikes because, you know, so they have this presidential kill list, which is very similar to what you're talking about, list of people in foreign countries who uh, are they're called terrorists, but uh, quite a lot of them are actually um, kind of what, what what could be called Nothing so, is social, social kind of revolutionaries or people who are agitating, <clears throat> trying to agitate in the in the in the local country, for example, in the part of the empire, for example, the modern American empire, uh, for example, in Yemen, there's a lot of people who are killed by drone strikes in Yemen, and they're said to be terrorist leaders, but in fact, they're people who are agitating for 
equal rights and, and social justice uh, against the the kind of client uh, leader in Yemen. So, so for me, the, the parallel is very stark. But when you, when you read the history of the Roman Empire, you begin to realize that nothing mm. has changed in mm. more than 2,000 years. And the Suda, it was so bad at one point that it was not kill list was publishing. At one point, he published the list of people who should not be killed. Because everybody else was was Mm -hmm. free game. Yeah, it was shorter. So that's basically the situation into which Julius Caesar was born because there were these slave wars. But he was related to Marius. Yeah, there were slave wars. There were uh, civil wars going on. There were wars of the Italian allies because these other city-states that were not being allowed to have uh, uh, citizenship – uh, they were asking for citizenship, and in one case, it was really you know one of the civil war or the social wars. Um, the cities they all came against Rome. Rome almost lost, and only and and the funny thing is is they claimed the victory because they made the concession that they would give citizenship to all of these different uh, to the to the most eminent members of the cities of of these Latin communities. If you know if they could just make peace because they were on the verge of being destroyed. Now, now, how many years did they fight to finally give them what they wanted? And this this happened over and over and over again. The senators, somebody would propose an idea, and it was a good idea and it was fair and reasonable. They would just absolutely refuse to do it because they were conservatives. They were authoritarian followers. It had never been done that way. No, we don't do that. Blah blah blah. And then they would end up in a war with, you know, slaves or other cities or with their own people. And then they would end up conceding what they had refused to give in the first place and then acting like, you know, well, we thought of that all along, you know, I mean, because we made the law now, it's okay. And this happened again. And all the while this is happening, the population is being decimated. And interestingly, you know, decimation as we use it today is not the same thing that it meant back then. Back then... When something got decimated, it meant to kill one one of every ten men. They did it with the Roman, <clears throat> the Roman army, where there was any insubordination or some misdemeanor or something within yeah. the ranks. They uh, nobody would own up to it. They would basically say, "Okay, we're going to take one of every ten people, and uh, yeah, and kill him." Or actually, you'll have to kill him in a lot of cases. The, the other nine would have to kill the one other soldier who was just picked indiscriminately to pay for this sin. Uh, I mean that's that's a recipe for uh, an interaction among among the troops eventually if you keep up that kind of abuse you know. Well, and Caesar never conducted decimation. He threatened. Yes, he did. Co- oh well, no, he actually he did. Threat- he threatened. He threatened. He threatened it. Yeah, you're right. He but didn't. he cancelled. And uh, Caesar, as a youngster, although he came from an optimate family, from a family with a local cult, a, f- a famous a patrician one. family. He grew in a poor family in a poor district of Rome. So every day during his childhood, he was subjected to Sulla violence, to the ultimate violence targeting the poor people. He was on the other side. On and the his Plebeian friends side. undoubtedly were being targeted. And at the same time, he was indeed related to Marius, who was the hero of the, of the people, of the plebe, who wanted to liberate the people. He was related to Cornelia, his wife. So from the very beginning well, his aunt his aunt was married his father's sister was married to Marius yeah. 
<laughs> so anyway, so Sola came in and he did all this stuff, and then he left, and then Marius came back in. Yeah, and then Sola came so, back. No, hold on. So, so Marius came in and he did the Solon thing, which is the prescription thing, and killed a whole bunch of people. So, so while young Julius is here, he's seeing this type of situation, and it's very important that you you know that he was going through this for how he acted later in life because he saw Sola come in and Sola came in, and like you know Pierre mentioned, at one point uh, the senators actually came to him and said, you know what, stop posting the prescription prescription list. Will you just post who? No one can kill so that we can breathe easier and know that, you know, we're not on the list. And um, when Sola left, Marius came in and did more or less the exact same thing with the prescriptions, except he felt that he had been betrayed. So he prescribed his enemies and it was just sort of back and forth. And then Sola came back and then, you know, he got into all kinds of trouble. And Now, if you could just imagine living in an environment like this, growing so, up in an environment like so this. So Caesar is growing up in the situation. And the other thing is, is you have to understand how people in Rome lived. Um, these people were in abject third world poverty most of the Or time. worse. They lived in these things called insulae, um, which were basically tenement housing that were stacked 10 stories high, uh, made of very shoddy construction that very often collapsed. In fact, at one point, Cicero, who was very famous, was an owner of one of them, and his two of his collapsed. And he was uh, he was actually happy about this. <laughs> he was very happy about it because he would be able to rebuild and charge higher rates. So all these people are without a word for the thousands of people who were killed. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't say. Doesn't. It. Yeah. So all these people are living in abject poverty, tenement housing, very very poor. Um, the big you know hoodoos in the government are coming in different factions, and each time one of them comes in and takes charge, he posts prescription lists. Everybody's getting killed. Um, and this is what the, what he was growing up. In. That was the political environment and the social socioeconomic environment that he grew up in. And it gives a lot of meaning to all what he's going to do later in, in his life. The two most documented action he took in his early early stage of his career are a when he refused Sulla's order to divorce his wife Cornelia because she was related to Cena and Marius. And she was, he was willing to lose his life in order to respect the engagement to Marius and Sina, related uh, Cornelia. And the second action, soon after his first election, he would decide to make a celebration for Marius. So yeah. those two acts, Marius celebration, wedding with uh, Cornelia, are both related to the people side. Symbols. Okay. So they're getting ahead. They keep jumping ahead. Well, no, we're not getting ahead because you introduced Marius, and by this point, Caesar is at least a boy going on. This whole situation is political uprising, and it's necessary to establish the surroundings with which he grew up in. Yes, exactly. Anyhow, the point I want to make here is is that we have this so-called glorious record of that period of Rome that – our civilization, our literature, Shakespeare, so, you know, they look up to this because we have the writings of people like Cicero and and all these great orators that, you know, would uh, declaim about, you know, the republic and liberty and democracy. Of course, they only meant liberty and democracy for the 100 families or so, but nevertheless, they would get up there and make it sound like it was a really big, important deal because, you know, for them, the rest of the people 
didn't have a religion. They weren't they people. weren't people. So when okay? they talk about that. So since hardly anybody else wrote any records of the time, you know, we tend to see it through the eyes of Cicero. But it was an age of horrors. It was an age of revolutions and anarchy and the heads hundreds and hundreds of heads of the proscribed victims being mounted on poles in front of the Senate House. I mean, it was just like... I mean, Barbarians. Yeah, it's horrible. There were battles in the street. There was butchery. It was, it was a gang war of the worst kind. Constant struggles between the patricians, the common people organized in Caesar's boyhood under the protection of his uncle, General Marius, and afterwards, Sulla, the patrician leader on the other side, left no atrocity undone. Cicero and Caesar both lived in it at its worst, and though not participants in the bloody deeds of their contemporaries, they were witnesses of them, and each in his own way was ambitious to be a leader and to bring about improved administration of government and respect for law. Cicero, of course, wanted to do it for the sake of the optimates only. Caesar wanted to do it for everybody. So, we have gotten to the point where we've got Caesar. It's said that Caesar was a youth of extremely temperate uh, disposition, and he had a dignity of character that placed him, you know, in in a in a very good light to everybody who knew him from what little can be discerned, even though the early story of his life has been lost. Um, early in life, it apparently was Caesar's ambition to become a leader, and leadership was basically an instinct in him. Caesar's forte was statesmanship. That was what he was actually best at, though in the end he ended up having to use warfare to get in a position where he could do what needed to be done as a statesman. But step by step, by every device of intelligence, self-control, prudence, or by bold and timely extravagance and audacity, he went through what they call the Path of Honors. Now, the Path of Honors was what every uh, patrician family sent their sons through. I mean, in, in, in our civilization, you you go to elementary school, then you go to middle school, then you go to high school, you go to university, and at some point, you know, you go and... It, it, at some point in our history, they had the grand tour, and then you decide what kind of thing you're going to do, and then you get a job with the family firm or the firm of, you know a friend or neighbor family, whatever. So you have this path. And in in government, we have, you know, you start out, you may be a... A crystal? Well, in in our... I'm talking about our time right now. In our time, you may start out as being a helper on a political campaign, and then you Mm -hmm. become an aide, and you may be a... Uh, a fundraiser today. You may be a fundraiser. Well, that's the easiest way to get into mm-hmm. politics nowadays. But it used to be that you would be an intern. You'd go an intern in Congress, yeah. and then you would run for some kind of small office in your local town, and then you might become mayor. Then you might run for a, a, a you know state senator. Then maybe for governor, uh, maybe for uh, Congress or whatever, and eventually you might run for president. But the way Rome had it set up, since they changed their consuls, which was the top position every year, 
you know, they basically pass this position around in and amongst these families every year. There were two of them elected, and this gave a chance for everybody to be on top and to follow this path of honors. You would start out, you would be a, a quester, which was kind of like a uh, an administrative person. You took care of the finances. You'd go and... Yeah, and the, the meaning quester question is the, the one who the Senate in public debates uh, ask questions. He doesn't give answer. He doesn't define laws. He's just here as a, to ask questions. It's a basic level. And then you have the ideal, and this was a kind of a a different position. Go ahead. Yeah, no, the praetor. You have consul position. You have proconsul position. Yeah, well, you became a proconsul after you had served one year as a consul. Then you were given a province to be governor of. So of course everybody wanted to get to be a consul. Because then after they got to be a consul, then they could be a governor of a province, which meant massive loot and booty because you mm-hmm. get sent over there to be in charge. It means you can tax the hell out of those inhuman people who are under your governance. Legions and yeah. then exactly. go around conquering. Them. Yeah, then you can yeah, you can have an army and you can you know, so they just imagine all the numbers of people that were doing this back then. And of course once you had a consul in your family, your family became noble. You were no longer just ordinary patrician. You were a part of the nobility. So it was it was just this incredibly um, stratified society with these with these people at the top. So, in any event, Caesar comes along, and if you read the story of Caesar, even written by his Exclusively, uh, written, by exclusively written by people who didn't like him, you realize that he worked for everything he got. He went through the path of honors. He was a quester. He was an edile. He was a, uh, you know, he finally made it to be a consul. Then he became a proconsul. The only thing that he ever had given to him was when he was about, uh, uh, what, 16, 16 or 17 years old. Uh, his mother's influence with his uncle-in-law, the aged Marius, he was made a priest of Jupiter and a member of the Sacred College of Priests, priests which had a, a, a small income attached to it. And at that time, he married uh, the daughter of Senna, who was the uh, second consul along with Marius. And this is the girl that he refused to divorce. Which, by the way, Sola took away his uh, mm. his position. So at 20... He refused Sulla's demand that he divorce his wife, and so a price was put on his head. He was put on the proscription list, and he had to spend an entire year hiding in the hills and the swamps around Rome. Uh, During this time, his mother, who was a member of a very influential family, and the Vestal Virgins and a few other people were pleading on his behalf with Sulla to lift the proscription off Caesar's head. Uh, Sulla had also confiscated his property, you know, revoked his position, etc. And so finally, after being put under so much pressure and uh, by these other people who were, <laughs> who knows how they managed to do it, he lifted the proscription on Caesar and he made the remark, interestingly, take him since you will have it so. But I warn you that in this loose-girt youth, there are many Mariuses. It was prophetic. Yeah. So after his prescription was lifted, he went east. 
he went to serve in an army with uh, Thermos, who had, well, not exactly an army. He uh, went to serve with Thermos, who had been assigned to clear the Greek seas of pirates. So I'm going to talk about pirates at another time because these pirates are connected to that whole Mithraic Mysteries business. So we're just going to just pass by that right now. Not long after that, uh, he's heard of as having won an oak wreath of Rome for distinguished valor at the storming of Mytilene. Uh, He must have at this time been about 24 years old. Then he is said to have had a short period of a very gay life at the court of King Nicomedes of Bithynia. And it's, it's about this period of his life that a lot of very slanderous things were said. But that also is a little bit curious. I'm going to talk about that separately at another time because I think something very mysterious was going on during that period when he was supposedly leading the gay life at the court of King Nicomedes. Um, Then he comes back to Rome and he decides to become an advocate, basically a lawyer. Now, in those days, you you weren't a lawyer and advocating. because you got paid for it, because you weren't allowed to get paid for it. I mean, of course, you could take bribes under the table, but basically it gave you an opportunity to appear in the forum or in these uh, court cases and demonstrate your capacity, your abilities as an orator, as a persuader. And people could, you know, kind of sit around and watch and give you points. And if you were really good, they'd all hold up a little sign that says, you know, 10 mm-hmm. and... uh <clears throat> Yeah, at the time, rhetoric was very important in uh, Roman life. It was propaganda of the time. It was television. And uh, you didn't have necessarily to win the case to get a good reputation as an orator. And that's the case of uh, Caesar, who defended hopeless cases, usually being on the side of the people, of the weak ones. He lost his case most of the time because he was alone against all the rest of the Senate, but he was extremely brilliant as far as... uh, Eloquence was concerned. Yeah, he spent, a, he spent a lot of time trying to prosecute very high up people, which gained him a lot of favor with the people. I think he did it intentionally. He never expected to win. Uh, he did it intentionally to create favor with the people. It was lost from, lost from the beginning. So, he, anyway, he was. He was beaten over and over again because he would try to prosecute these people who'd gone off to be governors in the provinces and they were graft, involved in graft and corruption and oppression. So, he was he was trying to get them brought to justice. So after he was beaten a few times, he decided to head out for uh, Rhodes, where he was supposedly studying with Apollonius Molon, a famous professor of rhetoric and oratory. So he spent two years there. It was supposedly on this voyage that he was captured by pirates. And once again, we're going to pass over this because that whole that whole issue of what he was doing at Rhodes, where Posidonius, the great Stoic uh, scholar, was, and... Uh, you know how that may relate to the Mithraic mysteries that later came along is something I want to devote an entire uh, discussion to. Uh, so we're going to skip that. But anyhow, he went and supposedly spent about two years in Rhodes studying rhetoric. So he was a Rhodes scholar. Yeah, kind of the original Rhodes scholars. Mm-hmm. So at the age of twenty-five or twenty-six, then he returned to Rome. He was shortly thereafter elected military tribune. Uh, This gave him an official position as a speaker in public places. Cicero, who he probably knew to some extent one way or another as he was growing up and had previously been 
an acquaintance of his, described him after his return as an orator of graceful diction and persuasive force of reasoning. He was devoid of the flowers of rhetoric. However, there are almost no records left of this period of his life. At the age of 32, he was made quaestor. This gave him his seat in the Senate. In the following year, he was edile. Up to his 33rd year, he seems to have had steadily in mind the procurement of laws designed to broaden the basis of citizenship in Italy. That was his main thing, was to grant citizenship to people who had served the empire, people who were uh, steady, stable people. And as you can understand from what we described earlier, you, you know why this there was this incredible conservative resistance to giving citizenship because it was like a holy thing. And even if by this time the kind of holiness or belief about it had faded away, there was still this conservative idea that that's the way it's always been. You can't be a citizen if you're not a member of the families, and we're the families. And, of course, uh, there was probably even a conscious um, resistance to the idea that these other people would then be allowed to vote, and then if they were allowed to vote, they would vote on things that would take the power away from this small clique of families, take their land away, and that was probably even a more compelling reason to resist the granting of citizenship to anybody else. Yeah, um, at, at the time it's probably a transition phase where you have two main reasons for this uh, strong conservatism amongst the senators. A, some of them probably try to respect the religious rules, and the religious rules are set in stone for centuries, so nothing can move, nothing can change. Another reason is probably uh, conservatism is a good way to keep the power. Well, I mean, the Senate at this time, I mean, just from, from, from what I understand, and it's just my opinion, of course, regardless of what they say, that they were not particularly religious. It was very much motivated entirely by just, just greed. plain old-fashioned greed at this point. I mean, the religious underpinnings of their social order had, for, for the most part, were nothing more than than. than than substanceless form at this point, you know. That well, there were there were still some who were the diehard religious types, but probably by and large, most of the senators, most of the patricians, yeah. had kind of lost their faith in their religion, and it was just purely. Well, they may have was, kept it up to hold uh, sway over the the rabble, if you know. Well, what I mean, look at George something. Bush. You yeah. know, he turned Christian, and God told mm-hmm. him to invade Iraq. I mean, does anybody really believe the man was a Christian? I mean, mm-hmm. come on. Yeah. Give me a rest. Often in uh, antique text, you see the same remark. The senators invoked a a long forgotten rule, law. The law were never cancelled because they came from from the religion. And uh, apparently was still here, this religion, in the law, in the habits, in the way of thinking, consciously or unconsciously. But indeed, the active cult, active religious activities, have been what uh, what are done. It was you are still present in a public life, though. Right? Still, we talked about the omen. We talked about sacrifice. There was a lot of celebrations. There was a lot of there was a lot well, of temples. I mean, 
at this time, I mean, it's pretty much indicated that, like, what was his name? Not not Bibulus. Jesus, I can't remember. The, the co-consul of, of Julius Caesar, that everyone Pompeii. kind of knew that he was making the ogres up. Oh, yeah. Of this, this, so that at this really... point, even among the Senate, that the, the religion of even ogres had kind it was of just, become... It was just being used. For sure. Again. And, and Caesar felt this way, and he indicated that he felt this way about ogres and... and and all this religious, you know, superstition that he well, we see that we see that in the present day. You know, the masses of of people are controlled by religious leaders who clearly do not believe in what they're propagating. Yeah, what was yeah. it? This Billy Graham guy apparently yeah. is is quoted as saying from another preacher that uh, he knew what he was doing was wrong, but he had been doing it so long he was making so much money that he wasn't going to quit. You know, yeah. so it's this, it's nothing changes. Two thousand years, nothing has changed between now and then, except the the dress. The language that people use, and that's about, about it. You know, I mean. So anyhow, we've got Caesar now. He's 33 years old, and he's trying to pass laws uh, to grant citizenship. Um, he's trying to pass agrarian legislation to give land to people, and at this same time, Pompey has been sent to pacify Spain, and Crassus is fighting the war, one of the last slave war against the great Spartacus. Now, I want I want you to think about this, that in our Western literature, uh, we make this big hullabaloo. I mean, there's a book and a movie about Spartacus, the resistance against the empire, and what a great hero, and that this was like the most noble and wonderful thing, et cetera, et cetera. And then on the other side, we glorify the freaking empire that was making all of these slaves Mm-hmm. The Spartacus led in his rebellion. I mean, how schizophrenic, and, how schizophrenic is that? Of which Cicero and Cato, these lauded, you know, senators and and optimates of the time, are, are you know held up as being this great example of you know freedom and democracy, and yet they were the ones who were making slaves. Yeah, and mm-hmm. uh, Crassus, of course, killed the uh, killed the slaves and then had them posted on pikes every so many meters down the Appian Way. Six thousand uh, rebels were crucified along the Appian Way every hundred meters. Every hundred meters. Every hundred meters of body. Can you imagine growing up in an environment like that? Well, in a sense, we do. But you know, it's interesting. It's interesting because somewhere in Appian, he mentions the fact that uh, when there was a battle, you know, at the first, at the, after the first battle, they brought all the dead soldiers home to give them their proper burial because, of course, their religion prescribed they had to be properly buried so they could be fed, right? But then there was such an uproar in the city that they made a law that they had to either bury them on site, they could no longer bring them home because it upset the people. They didn't want the people seeing how many were being killed. Now, what about, uh, you know, the the forbidding of, of you know, the... Uh, press coverage of American soldiers coming home from the Iraq war that was uh, was passed during the Bush administration. You're not allowed to see, you know, how many people are killed and how many people are coming home in a box. So, you know, these kinds of things are the same kinds of ideas that they have in these uh, citadels of power, and it doesn't matter whether it's today or 2,000 years ago. So... Caesar didn't really have any military training, and at this point in time, well, he had been Mytilene. Yeah, well, he'd been there, but he was, you know, it wasn't any training to be a commander or anything. He'd right. just been a kind of a soldier, and 
at this point, nobody understood or had any inclination that he had any uh, talents in the military sphere. And nobody, of course, thought of Caesar as a military genius. He was just kind of a a failure as an advocate, although he had made nice speeches and he was a real troublemaker because he was trying to give people citizenship and trying to give them land. So that was uh, the general... Although at this point, I think we can say that most senators perceived him as a, as a threat. Yeah. They... yeah, they were beginning to. They were beginning to. But, you know, sometimes they would get soft. Basically, he was kind of ripening as a statesman and a jurist. And at the same time, what he was seeing was Pompey getting all of the power because Pompey was the towering military genius. He see. wasn't really. And he wasn't. And he was seeing that the way he was trying to change things, because it seems that his main interest was as an advocate, as a jurist, as a uh, you know somebody who learns the law, works with the law, works within the law. But he was seeing he wasn't having any success. And here's this guy, Pompey, over here. And look at him. He's getting all this power. And my God, you know. Because there had been a change over the previous decades in the Roman Empire where actually generals, through the power of their army, were gaining other ones who were having the most political power, like Sulla and like Pompey to some extent, although he didn't manage to transform totally his military success into political power. And Caesar was living in a time where to conduct the political reforms he wanted to conduct, either you had to be on the optimate side or you had to acquire enough military power to, quote-unquote, convince the optimates. On the grounds of Pompeii, I mean, he came close to it, but unfortunately Caesar kind of foiled him, and as it turned out, uh, Pompeii was kind of riding on victories that were very easily won against poorly armed and poorly organized enemies who couldn't have offered his legions any resistance. So his legions were very soft and not particularly well trained. They hadn't fought any "quote unquote" real wars, as Caesar observed when he when he defeated his arm when he went there and did the whole Vini Vidi Vici thing. That Pompey had just been sending back all these reports of these great victories and pumping up the threat of the people he was conquering. When there really wasn't much. So, you know, I mean... Like but in today. any event, Pompey was uh, getting more and more powerful, and the Senate was feeling like he was kind of a little bit of a threat, and there was a party in the Senate that were trying to suppress or keep Pompey down. Caesar, uh, being the genius that he was, saw that, you know, hmm, there's something about this I need to figure out, and we need to do something. So instead of joining the Senate party that was trying to keep Pompey down. Instead, he stood up and made speeches on behalf of Pompey to give him the power to do various things. Uh, He joined with Cicero and Crassus and obtained for Pompey the supreme command of the Roman army and navy for the purpose of ridding the Mediterranean of the pirates, once again, uh, who had become masters of the sea. Pompey was given the power and made short work of them because they probably weren't really much of a threat anyway. And then he returned to Rome. Unfortunately, Pompey wasn't much of a statesman. He didn't have any tact and he didn't know anything about civil government. And he fell under the influence of Cicero, Crassus, and Caesar, which was not a bad thing, and which was probably what Caesar intended. You know, I'll, I'll stick up for you, help you get what you want, and then, you know, I'll make a friend of you and then you come and help me. Maybe another point to explain the the position 
of the Senate towards Pompeii and later towards Caesar, the Senate were playing a tricky game with the generals. They needed the generals and the army to conquer land, get more booty, more slaves, more money. At the same time, they were fearing generals who gained too much power because they could overthrow them, like Sulla did, and gain dictatorship. So basically with Pompey, what they did and what they tried to do with Caesar is use them as generals, gain victories. And then strip and, them of their power, make them a, a regular citizen, and then prosecute them for crimes so that they could send them into exile. Yeah, right. uh, they didn't do that with uh, Pompey because Pompey was overall on the side of the optimates. So Pompey well, he was, came over later. Yeah, but with Caesar, it was a, a bigger problem because he got all this military power and legitimacy, but at the same time, he was not at all on the side of the optimates. So it's at this point that people are starting to really notice Caesar, the senators. And at this point, that Cicero's letters reveal that he is becoming very uneasy at Caesar's growing power. And... He was writing these in his private letters, but he wasn't doing anything on the outside because Cicero was a real windbag and a weenie. He was the most officious twerp I've ever encountered in all of history. He couldn't be a true friend or he couldn't be an opponent. He he just he was just two faced and hypocritical. So at this point, Caesar kept on going. He was he united Crassus and Pompey and began prosecutions of the officers who had been enriched by serving Sulla in his systematic assassinations of Italians. And the ones that uh, Sulla targeted particularly were those of democratic sympathies and confiscated their properties. So at this point, Caesar's having some success. He succeeded in convicting many of them and in restoring the confiscated homes and estates of their former owners. So now he's 37 years old. At this point, he is voted to the position of Pontifex Maximus, which is the kind of the pope of the Roman religion. He is the the head guy. This office was elective, and it lasted for your entire life. I mean, you, you were elected Pontifex Maximus, and you were, were that until you died. So he got elected into this position, and at about the same time, the Catiline Conspiracy, or Catiline Conspiracy, filled all of Rome with fear. Catiline was supposed to be, uh, you know, of a optimate family, and he was going to uh, get an army together, and he was going to take over, make himself dictator, and Caesar aided Cicero in exposing the conspiracy, but in the Senate, he opposed the unlawful decree to put the conspirators to death without trial, which was the big thing that Cicero wanted to do. So Cicero, uh, on his own uh, authority, executed optimates without trial. Well, Cicero and Cato. The- Cicero and Cato. They were really, I mean, this was really kind of a really dreadful precedent because they put themselves as being no better than Sulla. Uh, because these men were Roman citizens and they were entitled to a trial, but they never got one. So, through Cato's influence against him, Cicero failed to uh, persuade the Senate not to execute these people. And at the same time, uh, Caesar himself came close to being assassinated. 
he was at that point a praetor, which was a judicial position, which gave him civil power. Uh, failing in the assassination attempt, the Cato party feared what he might do as praetor to condemn their illegal acts executing the Catiline conspiracies. So they pushed a decree through the Senate to degrade him from that office and forbidding him to exercise its function. What did Caesar do? He obeyed the decree, but he reminded his friends and the people that obedience to the law is the first duty of the citizen. And basically, he looked pretty holy and they looked pretty shabby. So the people were muttering and making lots of noises about how shabby the senators were and how holy Caesar was. So the Senate fairly fairly quickly recognized the weakness of their position and they repealed that decree. So at the end of his year as praetor, uh, and since Caesar had made made it clear he wasn't going to go against the law, they had degraded him and he had accepted it meekly like a lamb, so they were kind of softened up, as the uh, ancient historians tell us. So they appointed Caesar Propraetor, or governor of Spain. So he went to Spain for two years, was governor, chief justice, general. And for the first time, he found himself in the command of an army. Uh, more specifically, the very famed 10th Legion was raised at this time. Yes, this is where he created the 10th Legion. And it was at this point that his genius for civil administration and for statesmanship began to be revealed because he would go into a place, he would get the information from everybody, see what the problems were, and he would basically, you know, he was the go-to guy. He solved the problems. Here, here's an edict, here are decrees, this is how you're going to do things, made lists, you know, this is fair, this is unfair. Yeah, and uh, his efficiency applied in that. To most fields, it could be a social problem, it could be population, logistics, building, food. He managed to find very quickly, very good and very fair solutions, whatever the constant field was. And remember, this, this kind of stuff comes from his enemies. The people who were his enemies, they can't help but admit these things because it was so Because apparent. it was true. So, it's so very now he's 41 years old. It's the end of his term as governor of Spain, and he was entitled to either have this glorious triumphal procession or he could run for consul for the next year. So he relinquished his triumph and hurried back to Rome and stood as a candidate for consul. He was elected almost unanimously. It's quite telling because his triumph maybe doesn't ring much bell today, but triumph was a, a major... That's what everybody wanted back then. They wanted to have a triumph, you know. Mm -hmm. And very few people got one. Maybe the before Caesar triumph, it was Pompey's triumph, the 10 days or 15 days triumph. It was very rare. It was a very, very high distinction. Yeah. So during the one year of his consulship, he enacted into law most of the reforms that he had been working on for 20 years. Caesar didn't do that. I mean, 20 years. you got to really understand, for 20 years, Caesar's been trying to make these changes in the Roman government. Slowly, slowly, catchy monkey. And peacefully. Peacefully. Respecting the law, not conducting assassination, not really bribing, respecting the law, respecting people. Yeah. For 20 years, and those laws, his proposals, are always along the same line. Distribute land, give citizenship, make consuls and the elites accountable. 
That's it. So another thing he did during his period as consul, now you've got to understand the Roman constitution, you know, and I put that in quotes, was unwritten. Basically, they were kind of a reactive body. They would pass a law based on some little problem that was in front of them. Usually it was a stupid law. They would engrave it in some kind of a brass plaque or something and tack it up on the wall. And then the next week they would decide, oh, we made a really big mistake. That is not turning out well. The people are marching against us with pitchforks and firebrands. Let's change it. They'd make the next law, engrave it on a brass plaque, tack it up. You know, or or put it in a box somewhere. It's not even certain to the historians, you know, how they collected all this stuff or how they knew what laws were what or, you know, what was tradition. Because nothing was really, other than these decrees that they wrote down, nothing was really uh, set in stone, so to say, or written on paper. So what Caesar did was he compiled the laws known among the jurists as the Code Julian. Then he extended uh, representation to the Italian cities outside the city of Rome, that is, granted citizenship. And he also passed the first law known requiring the daily publication of the doings of the Senate. This was a big one now. Because if the people knew what the Senate was talking about and what they were doing, what they were voting for, what they were voting against, then the people had a better opportunity of knowing, you know, whether they were, you know, whether anything was being fair or reasonable. At the end of his one year as consul, he was entitled to be appointed as a proconsul or governor of a province, as we already mentioned. But his vigorous forward movements in lawmaking, while with the consular spur he could urge his measures through, he had thrown the whole Senate into spasms of fury. They had concluded that they were going to clip his wings So what they did was they said they're going to pass a decree that instead of consuls going to be proconsuls and governing a province, we're going to pass a decree now that consuls can be supervisors of the forests and swamps and roadways. Mm. Now, I mean, you see what I mean about how they were doing their governing? Supervise that swamp. Yeah. So they were going to assign him to Department of Woods and Forests. Get that. And that was, uh, so he kept his mouth shut for a little while. He didn't say anything. And then he appealed to the Assembly of the People to assign him to a province where he might be most useful. He wanted Cisalpine Gaul, which was the Valley of the Po in southern France, and Illyria, which was over Croatia. Croatia. Croatia, basically. So it finally, because of the people putting pressure on the Senate, you know, they realized that they had to revoke this decree in a hurry because the people were coming with the firebrands and pitchforks, and so oh, yeah. they gave him his province. Maybe skip some important details about that whole consulship. Well, go ahead. So, so, so Romans had two consuls, the co-consulship, and he had what was the guy's name? Balbus. 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 And uh, uh, Balbus tried to block him passing these laws. Well, they would have like one month on, one month off, right? And Balbus was always kind of going behind him and undoing things, uh, doing things contrary to anything that he was doing, trying to block him constantly. And uh, early on, there was a a confrontation between them where apparently uh, the followers of Caesar 
while Balbus was trying to do one of his new decrees to, to screw over Caesar, where they pelted him with you know fecal matter and and tomatoes and stuff and booed him off the the podium or something. And so then he went off and kind of sequestered himself and uh, basically just did lots of ogreys and pr- prophecies and stuff like that, that horrible things were going to happen and everyone's going to die. Well, he time. tried to close the Senate and, and oh, yeah. deny the procedures to continue by every day uh, sacrificing wish- a victim and saying, oh, it's not an auspicious day. Yeah. And finally, Caesar got tired of this. Yeah. And he said, well, you know, heck with Balbus, you know, you know we're going to carry on with business because Balbus' intention was to stop any senatorial activity for the entire year by claiming every single day that the omens were bad. Right. And so the word went around, and it was recorded by the uh, uh, historians of the time, that uh, the joke was that there were two consuls uh, that year, Julius and Caesar. Yeah, Yeah, because he basically shut the guy up. But what the Senate was doing at that time is they were planning on repealing all of his reform laws and even bringing criminal charges against him the minute he stopped being pro-consul. Yeah, because you're you're immune to prosecution while you're a government official, but the minute you step down, you're a private citizen and you can be tried for, you know, whatever whatever they wanted to accuse you of and exiled. So and that was kind of their plan. So he had to And Cicero and Cato had a history of doing executing this. people without trial. So it was a dangerous situation for him and they're Blocking him from becoming proconsul was because if he transferred from consul to proconsul in a short enough span of time, they couldn't bring actions against him. If there was no gap of time. Right. He was but never a private citizen. Actually, they were going to use Bibulus law, quote-unquote, that every day was a sacred day. Therefore, no law could be enacted. And since Caesar had been enacting, enacting ways, uh, laws despite Bibulus uh, religious uh, days. It's filibuster. It was unconstitutional. Therefore, Caesar could be prosecuted at the end of his consulship. Well, also... And, and something interesting, actually, that uh, along all his life, Julius Caesar has been struggling politically. He's never had one ally among the Senate. He has had few allies politically, but it's where systematically people from the tribune. There was nobody People, to help him. He was fighting this battle alone. Yeah, all you, of his support came from the popular side. And on the top of my mind, I can only think about two tribunes who were faithful to him until the end, uh, Rufus and Vatianus. Yeah. All the rest was either against him or, or with him for a while and betrayed him eventually. Well, what he was things- alone against the all elite of Rome. Well, uh, Joe mentioned the filibuster, which is an interesting story with Cato, who I who I, who I absolutely hate, and I think he's totally misrepresented in history. Uh, Cato was always trying to filibuster uh, Caesar, and Caesar had him basically arrested and taken away. <laughs> yeah, he put him in jail, threw him put out. Him in, put him in jail because That's he was doing it. it intentionally. So to, you can bet that Cato him. hated him. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So anyhow, the people voted him, the People's Assembly voted him uh, proconsul and gave him his provinces for a period of five years. And because the people were quite agitated, the Senate was forced to confirm it because, of course, they didn't want him with the pitchforks and the firebrands. So Caesar spent some time getting an army of soldiers and mechanics ready, and then he marched off. So at the age of 42... 42, 
he began a military career that has no his no equal in the history of Western civilization at the age of 42. Greater than Alexander, by far. So, he's going and campaigning, and we're not going to cover all the campaigns, but at the end of his first campaign, it began to be suspected in Rome, Rome that he had a little bit of military talent. Which was scary as hell for these guys. The patricians, of course, were hoping that he would get killed. Yeah. At the end of the second campaign in central and eastern France, Rome was electrified by the dash, the vigor, the scope of his military activities. Maybe one point here. The first campaign made by Caesar in Gaul is not uh, imperialism. It's not uh, led by the desire to expand the Roman territory. It was basically a peacekeeping, you know, restore order because there were tribes that were encroaching on other tribes and there was pillaging and plundering going on. And uh, formerly, leaders of friendly tribes, the Aedians, request Caesar to help him against invaders, namely Helvetian tribes. Yeah. He goes there. He proposes to the Helvetian people, to the Helvetian leaders, okay, no war, no booty, nothing. You just go back to Switzerland, to your land, and you leave the Aedians free and uh, living their life the way they want. Don't uh, invade the, and don't uh, loot. Go just back to your house. They say yes to Selvetian, but we need three days to uh, to make the decision officially. And in between the three days, they attack Caesar in the back. That's how it starts. And along the whole nine years long uh, goal campaign, it's basically a similar pattern that repeat again and again. And again, here, again. maybe we should mention something that is important, I think, is that not only the all elites were against Caesar, all the leaders of the tribes were against Caesar because he was bringing peace and they couldn't exert their power and uh, exploit people. And but also, history was against Caesar because it was so easy to manipulate tribes then by telling them, you see Caesar coming now? Remember the previous emperor and the previous emperor, the previous general, the previous consul, all of them looted, killed, burned, raped. Caesar is a Roman. He's like all his predecessor. He's going to do the same. So follow me, unroll my tribe uh, army, and fight against Caesar. Caesar was fighting against all those enemies at the same time. At the same time. And there are some instances, actually, where uh, the tribes had joined with, the, especially like, you know, sort of Germanic tribes and Belgian uh, tribes had, you know, joined with them to fight Caesar, lost, and then uh, ended up being kind of forgiven by him when he, he he accepted the fact that they had been manipulated into packs with these various different tribes. So, I mean, even in the cases of people who did that, he wasn't this, you know, sort of mad slaughterer that most people portray him as. He, he showed a lot of mercy. He showed a lot of um, forgiveness, and and he really showed that what he wanted was stability and peace uh, in the in the region. And not so much that he wanted to expand the empire. And here the context is important because maybe in the 20th century this mercy seems uh, understandable. But we have to keep in mind that Caesar was the very first leader to show mercy, forgiveness, equitable uh, treaties, agreements, always respecting his words. While all the other leaders before, Roman or from other empires, for them the rules was if you win, 
you have all the rights, and they were exerting those rights, pillage, looting, raping, and killing. Right. Well, most of them fed their army off of pillage. And yeah, such. well, that's how they survived, because it was easier than working. It was easier than paying their soldiers. <laughs> so anyhow, the third year passes, and the campaign showed that Caesar was the greatest explorer and the most daring leader of small forces against great odds that had ever been known in history. The 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th years followed in successive uh, victories in which we see him like like a bolt of lightning passing from one cloud to another. He built a bridge over the Rhine with a quickness that inspired wonder and terror among the Germans. Well, 10 days the first time. The second time, he built a bridge over the Rhine in one day. And Caesar is the engineer of that job. He's the one who figured out how to do it. He was he was a brilliant engineer. And maybe the, the features, because we can wonder how come Caesar won those 300 plus battles and he lost altogether maybe three, where he was totally two. unnumbered. Why? And there are several factors. He's a he was a, a brilliant engineer, even designing new kind of boats to to go to Britain, or to new machinery, new towers, new uh, fortification, walls. He was a great uh, strategist. Uh, you, you can read some some of his tricks. It's like uh, it's better than a novel. He was a great tactician. Uh, he had a unlimited energy, walking nonstop, days and night with his troops. And he didn't he, have epilepsy. And uh, maybe. The, I think maybe one of the key points that is not addressed often in those uh, books about military uh, uh, tactics and strategy is the psychological factor. I think for several reasons, Caesar really managed to transcend his troops. I think at one point, after maybe several months of years of campaign, seeing a kind of example of father in Caesar, the troops reached an amazing level of coherence, solidarity, motivation, confidence. Caesar could have led them anywhere they would have followed and, and they would have fight against the end to defend them, their army, their leader, their emblem. Caesar was the soul and the army was the body. And that's the way it was. So the patrician politicians of Rome were, of course, very disappointed he didn't get himself killed and they once had a message conveyed to the German king Ariovistus who was opposed to him in the west of the Rhine that the death of Caesar would be no sorrow to them and they wouldn't come after Ariovistus if he killed him and Ariovistus of course you know told Caesar that and got his ass whooped excuse me but that's what happened so The people were absolutely enthralled by Caesar's reports of his uh, commentaries, his wars. And the growing romance of his career excited everyone. This was a real hero. This was a real man. This was a real somebody who was for the people, somebody who was uh, uh, increasing the glory of Rome, showing what a real Roman should act like and be like. And it was it was giving inspiration to everybody. More so than I think anyone else in history. Yeah, and the More thing so was than George Washington. It just or... really, really uh galled the Senate that they had to vote thanks for him and ceremonies in praise of Caesar and so forth. Yeah, twenty day triumphs, something that has that had never been done during the Roman history. 
Yeah, and of course, uh, because of what Caesar was doing, they ha- kept having to postpone their planned assassination. So before his five years appointment as governor of Cisalpine Gaul and Illyria had ended, Caesar called a council at the city of Lucca within his own province, and he brought there the ablest men of Italy to consider the means to ensure some stability in the administration of public affairs at the capital. The assembly was like another senate. 200 of the leading men of the state, including a considerable number of the senators, formed an agreement by which Pompey, Crassus, and Caesar were to be supported and to support each other. Pompey would maintain order in Rome, Crassus would keep the Senate and the popular leaders from getting at each other's throats, and Caesar was to have five years more of his governorship of Gaul and Illyria and to be given the first consulship again at the expiration of his term as governor. That was a triumvirate. Yeah, so this was the period of the triumvirate. So uh, this united the uh, some of the major parties, and there were no patrician intrigues or plebeian violence that could endanger the internal peace of Rome for this period of time. It was a kind of golden age because Crassus was probably the most the wealthiest Roman citizen. Pompey was the old hero, that, uh, the, the great military hero who had pacified the East, and, and Caesar was, was the current hero yeah. who was pacifying Gaul. So this was this was really a. Uh, Actually, but of course, the optimates in the Senate hated this. This was oppression to them because, for God's sakes, they were not allowed to rule and they were losing their opportunities to get booty and plunder and, you know, to. It was plain old fashioned greed. Yeah, it was just basically greed. Maybe one point concerning Caesar as a leader as well. Something that I found striking is. um, how much on one side he was respecting and caring for the life of his soldiers and of the enemies, actually, and on the other side, how he was not caring somehow for his own life. There are many, many instances where Caesar makes the obvious choice of honor, of dignity, or keeping his word, or helping his uh, fellow uh, at the soldiers risk of his own life. At the risk of his life. And it's quite obvious that he's going to die. You need a miracle for him not to die. Well, eventually he doesn't die, which makes the story even more exciting. But um, those values are much more important for him than his own life. And again, I would point out that all of this information comes from people who were who hated Caesar. But they couldn't deny the facts. Who grudgingly admitted this. Yeah, they couldn't deny the facts. What they did was they would tell the facts and then they would attribute to Caesar, yeah. you know, like Vanity. he was he was just out there looking for power, so he was making friends. You know, he was making friends because he wanted power. You know, they never ceased to misjudge, underrate, and undermine him. And so, he still succeeded. Meanwhile, Cicero, along with the patrician senate, was spending all his time meditating on how to neutralize the effect of Caesar's growing fame. Pompey became jealous and drew away from the alliance, and then Crassus, unfortunately, was killed and his entire army annihilated on on a campaign in Syria. So the triumvirate kind of fell apart and things were in a bad way. So... 
all the rival interests were uneasy about the promise that they had made to Caesar that he should be the candidate for the first consul in Rome at the end of his proconsulate term. Cato and Cicero were scheming to cheat him out of it. And as the last year of his governorship approached, combinations or factions were made against him in Rome, which aimed at first depriving him of his army and then to the violation of the promise of the consulship because, of course, they wanted him to become a private citizen so they could prosecute him. Caesar, because he had a a well-developed intelligence network, knew what was going on. And at the same time, he was patient, and he kept trying to uh, work work these problems out in the normal diplomatic channels uh, at the time. And he kept bringing up the injustice of trying to strike him down after he had been for nine years absent from the capital, added territory to the domains of Rome, revenues to his treasury. Finally, he saw clearly that it was the plan of his enemies to give his army to the command of another general before his appointed term was ended to force him to come to Rome where his life would be at the mercy of the hired assassins and he resolved at this point to defend his rights in his own province and to hold the army to protect himself while appealing to the people for his promised consulship. Yeah, here we are, the key point in uh, Caesar biography. The war of gold is over. We're in... in, uh, 49 BC, and the civil war hasn't started yet. And actually, the Senate decided. The, the key point, the key discussion was the optimates wanted Caesar to get rid of his army because Caesar with his army was a, a big threat in their eyes, in their mind. But at the same time, Pompey had a big army in Spain. So Caesar said, Okay, I agree. I get rid of my army, I disband my army, if Pompey at the same time disband his army. So there's no more threat for Rome. No one can become a dictator through the power of its of his army. The Senate um, voted for a concomitant disbandment of the two armies, despite the sovereign decision of the Senate. Marcellus, the leader of the Senate of the time and opponent of Caesar, goes to Pompey and tells Pompey not to disband his army and to mobilize on the country's army to prepare the neutralization of Caesar's army in northern Italy. The Senate say disband all the armies and actually they decided with Pompey as a leader to attack Caesar in northern Italy. Caesar hadn't moved... Completely, uh, completely illegal. Hadn't done anything. Caesar was in northern Italy, was consul of northern Italy, was ruling the province he was in charge of. And that's how the civil war started, mm-hmm. and I'll let you go on with that. Well, Cicero and the Senate were too cowardly and too vacillating to carry out their intent. Caesar did not violate any order of the Senate or do any unlawful act until finding that his friends were driven from Rome and that Pompey, at the urging of Marcellus was determined to prevent his coming to Rome to claim the consulship. And it's at this point he crossed the Rubicon. To lead his army beyond that boundary was certainly an illegal act. 
But this this move, it was a reaction because to another Pompey illegal react. Was, yeah, yeah Pompey was... was marching toward northern Italy, and one of the reasons why Caesar and you can see in all his campaign the same pattern, he one of his main strengths is quickness. And instead of waiting in northern Italy and having casualties in northern Italy, the land is in charge. He makes the first move and he goes to Rome. He doesn't go to Rome to kill or destroy. He goes to Rome to establish the order for the Senate decision to be applied right. and for the election to be conducted. So at this point, when Caesar goes on the move, the great Pompey and the senators, instead of you know, feeling righteous about their position and organizing to hold the city against some terrible violator... They acted like guilty men evading justice, which was what Caesar was bringing. There was the common understanding of the people that what was going on was unjust and indefensible. And they all turned into cowards because they all knew it. Caesar, on the other hand, was strong in the consciousness that he was acting within his equitable rights. But so accustomed had the uh, higher classes in Rome become to bloody revenges and reprisals, they could believe nothing good of Caesar. They had compromised themselves at every step of the way by their opposition and reviling him that they could not comprehend an attitude of spirit that absolutely transcended anything they had ever known or understood. Caesar found that all of his attempts and efforts to prevent a civil war were misconstrued and evaded, and he began his march. And on the way, towns opened their gates and welcomed him as he advanced. The kindly feeling of Italy toward him became evident, but Caesar still sent messengers to the senators to impress upon them that he wanted peace and not civil war. To Cicero, he sent word that he would willingly live under the rule of Pompey if only they would guarantee his personal safety, and they refused to even answer him. They refused to even receive his messengers at a certain point. So the senators and Pompey, they fled across the sea where they were going to raise an army in Greece and come back and attack Caesar. Um, Caesar... You know, the the campaigns, the Civil War, I don't want to go into the details of that because... Well, uh, well Cato committed suicide at this point. Well, not at this oh, point. Later. That was, later. It was later. quite a bit later. Okay. But maybe to summarize what is going to go on, uh, what happened during the Civil War, Pompey is raising a humongous army, about 50,000 soldiers. Caesar has a small army, 25,000 soldiers. Pompey is in Greece. Caesar is in Italy. Caesar is going to Greece with a lot of difficulties, but he managed to bring part of his army to Greece. And he wins, despite, a, despite an outnumber troops and army. Pompey f- f- flees away. And uh, Caesar, realizing that Pompey is the head, and if he can neutralize Pompey, he can bring an head to the civil war, He's going to, like in a movie, he's going to run away through the sea, to the different countries, Cyprus, Lebanon, up to Alexandria in Egypt. He's going to follow Pompeii. 
One of the things that Caesar did before he even went after Pompey was he went to Rome, convened the remaining senators, those who hadn't run away, and addressed them and asked them to name him for the election to the consulship that he had been promised. The senators, however, seemed to consider it a weakness that he came to them asking them to do things in a lawful way. And they got very uh, haughty and resisting and negative and made it clear that they were not going to help him in any way. So at that point, he declared that since they would not keep their promises to him and govern with him, he would govern without them. So he quickly organized the civil and military measures necessary for the peace of the capital, and then he went after Pompey. And his war against Pompey is pretty interesting. Uh, and he, I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. And maybe what can be pointed out as well is during the war against Pompey, several times, although Caesar is winning battles after battles, despite uh, his, uh, the coming victory, he's still proposing peace He keeps sending Pompeii. messengers asking for peace. Pompey kept refusing to even hear the messages. He wouldn't even receive his messengers. So he's 52 years old when he embarks to go after Pompey. Pompey had three times the number of soldiers Caesar had. He occupied a strong position and... Things did not go really well at first for Caesar, um, but at a certain point, Caesar besieged Pompey, which made Pompey look a little bit ridiculous. Um, but Pompey did have command of the sea, and he had the advantage of his defensive position, so Caesar decided to take off and retreat inland because he figured if he did that, Pompey would follow him and then he would fight Pompey on the kind of ground that he could command. So Pompey did follow him and the celebrated Battle of Pharsalia was the result and it was an easy victory for Caesar and a total and complete rout of the patrician forces. Uh, 30,000 soldiers on Pompey's side were killed then Pompey ran away and he went to Alexandria, Egypt. He was beheaded in the Bay of Alexandria by Ptolemy, uh, by the servants of Ptolemy, the little brother of Cleopatra, because Cleopatra and her little brother were kind of having a little private war between themselves. So they thought that this would make Caesar happy. Caesar, when, when they brought his head, Pompey's head to him on a dish, he was aghast, wept, because that is not what he wanted. So... Things went on, and we're getting really short of time. Right, but I would like to put one thing out. The one word that hasn't been used when discussing what Caesar did when he came back to Rome is proscription. He didn't do it. He didn't kill any of his enemies when he came mm. back in. He could have killed all those senators. That's what every single one who had done it before had. That's what Sola did. That's what Marius did. They killed everybody who had, quote-unquote, betrayed them or had shown to be unfaithful, and yet he did not do that. You know, he didn't post any prescription. Yeah. So, and, and there's another thing. Caesar didn't pay attention to factions. When he was making laws, he didn't 
you know, go over one side to from one side to the other. It wasn't all in favor of one side or the other. Like uh, he let the people know that order was heaven's first law. Debts must be paid and the law enforced. Mm. But you know, mm. he would he would uh, remit part of the debt or he would make the terms of repayment, uh, you know, more equitable so that people could afford to repay their debts because he. He, you know, people needed to pay their debts, and the lenders needed to get their money, or else so, society would collapse. So the point here is that after defeating Pompey and his army, which were essentially the forces of the <clears throat> Senate and the people who were all against <clears throat> Caesar, Caesar returned to Rome victorious and was in a commanding position to finally effect the changes that he always wanted to change, uh, or make, make the changes that I always wanted to make in terms of social society and uh, more equality for the, the masses past law, uh, land reforms, etc., uh, etc., et and try to impose his uh, his vision of a of a better society. Yeah, and he changed the calendar. I mean, literally every area of society he was trying to improve. In the 53rd and 54th years of his life, his time was divided between military campaigns, um being priest, uh, he was a lawyer, he was a writer, you know, he had been a tribune, a quester, a praetor, pontifex maximus, judge, consul, you know, he had been all of his mature life, these things before receiving his appointment as proconsular governor, and never before or since has there been such a combination of all the powers of the human mind developed in a single individual on the stage of history. From 46 BC to 44 BC, the two last years of his life, that's the last part of his life after the civil war, basically has all the power. He's elected by the Senate as a dictator for life. Um, he is Pontifex Maximus, he's a political leader, religious leader, and he will implement, implement a lot of reforms in every field. And actually, he will change Rome as a city-state, to Rome as the coordinating center, center of, an, of empire. an empire that covers half the Western world. And he will do that with a lot of brio and a lot of efficiency and a lot of what he decided that he envisioned, that he created at the time, is still here today. Legal, uh, I mean, concerning Legal law, logistics, yeah. organization, uh, administration. It was really a visionary uh, individual. And at that time, Rome was really kind of close to to collapsing and eating itself from within because of Yeah, it would have destroyed itself mm -hmm. completely. Very quickly, but it Caesar, lasted for another 500 years. Caesar's first act was to issue a general amnesty for any political offenses that had committed, been committed against himself. He carried the spirit of clemency toward his enemies to a degree that suggests the birth of in his mind, of some ethical truth that he wanted to perpetuate via Rome. There seems to have been no reform which his mind regarded as impossible. He wanted to build better character into the Roman people, and he wanted to graft these moral principles into the laws and have the laws written Corinth, Carthage, other desolated cities were repopulated by Italians. 
The waste farmlands were populated by his encouragement to their peaceful possession and the granting of, of tracts to, to soldiers and poor people. The provinces were gratified to be given representation. They were given citizenship. They were given home government in their own provincial assemblies. You know, yes, indeed, Caesar engaged in putting on a lot of very costly, you know, circus-type activities, but it was a necessity of the time to keep the masses of the citizens pleased and quiet while he instituted the changes that needed to be made. Anything, you know, any kind of uproar, upset would have been, you know, an interruption in the progress of his transformation of Rome into a real center of administration of an empire. He was laying broad and deep foundations for a better city, a better state, and a better empire. If he'd had 20 years left, Mm -hmm. can you imagine what he might have done? He could have crystallized everything. Nowadays, we think of the crime of the assassination of Julius Caesar as something that only happens in dens of violence, you know, like um, gang warfares, inner cities, you know, that sort of thing. But in Rome, it was the patrician class of stilted Roman senators who made the Senate a chamber of infamy. And it was in the walls of the Senate that they concocted the plan to assassinate one of the greatest human beings who's ever lived. Uh, actually, there's an ironic point. The, the Senate was being refurbished at the time, and the sessions were being held in a, in a, another room nearby in the building where the Pompey Stadius was standing. And Caesar was actually killed at the bottom of the statues of his nemesis. Mm-hmm. Well, interesting. The statues had been the statue of Pompey on his victory had been knocked down. Yeah, and he had he had had, had them re erected them mm-hmm. because he didn't think that it was very uh, dignified for people to be breaking the statues. Just because he had won, he didn't think that that should be. Yeah, nobody should have their nose rubbed in. Yeah, and he wasn't about you know rubbing people's nose in. He yeah. wanted everybody to live peaceably. And, and I mean, the striking thing about all of this, when you look at the history of 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 Caesar's life and what happened to him, you can't help but be struck by a certain, ultimately a certain naivety on his part uh, in terms of doing those kind of things, uh, believing too much in the goodness of this elite that uh, yet you would think that he should have had enough experience of to, to suspect that at the very least that they would be plotting against him. And, well, he knew, he knew absolutely. Yeah. But he also knew that he couldn't live his life behind bodyguards. Yeah. You know? And you you can't live forever. You know? Well, yeah, exactly. But so like it was. It was in the 56th year of his life. He might have been 58 if this other individual who has proposed he was born in 102 is correct. But in the 56th year of his life, he was killed. And immediately the common people went into a frenzied rage of grief and loss and... Within a few years, the assassins died horrible deaths. But unfortunately, we're down to the present time. Historians have presented the apologies of the patricians for the acts of these vile murderers as patriotic. And this deed was not one bit more justifiable than Booth's assassination 
of Abraham Lincoln. And it's one of the saddest climaxes in history that such a man, gifted as Caesar was, was assassinated the way he was. A man of imagination, ambition, the temperance of a philosopher, the logical thoughtfulness of a mathematician, the electric energy, and at the same time, kindly and statesmanlike common sense was cut off at a time when the depraved Romans most needed his wise head and the conciliatory spirit, which was the glory of his nature. Well, so to answer our question then, that is the title of the show, Julius Caesar, Evil Dictator or Messiah for Humanity. <clears throat> I certainly think we can dispense with the idea that he was an evil dictator. Uh, quite the opposite. He was a dictator, but not in the sense that people understand that term today, uh, as we just explained. Um, Messiah for Humanity, certainly he had a vision for humanity that was in the interests, in the best interests of humanity. Well, Caesar has figured in literature as the typical destroyer. And the problem is there wasn't a republic to destroy. There was a patrician oligarchy that was hereditary, that lived like a leech on human slavery. It called itself a republic, but it wasn't. It lived on the robbery of conquered, subjected states. Uh, Julius Caesar made an effort, almost entirely alone, to shape legislation so as to undermine the pernicious prerogatives of that class and to build up a broader Roman citizenship. Caesar felt himself, himself the power to do something, and he tried to do it. To what extent he might have succeeded if he had been given 20 more years can only be conjectured. But the fact that stands out from everything that's written about him is that when he had the power to do it, all he did was lay the foundation in law to make a fairer government mm -hmm. and to better the people. That's the bottom line. Yeah, and I think even if he had another 20 years, he may have been able to push things further in that direction and crystallize some things in society. But it's a sad indictment on, on human civilization that I really don't think uh, things would have turned out differently than they did with subsequent uh, <clears throat> leaders or emperors of the of the Roman Empire, such because of uh, human nature being such as it is, and the preponderance of the type of people like uh, people like Cicero and and other corrupt and frankly largely insane leaders who who came after him. Um, I can't imagine how it was going to ever be different, but certainly Caesar's life and what he tried to do should stand as a, a an example, as, um, as an inspiration, uh, if not for any leaders out there, but certainly for the for the people themselves uh, in in terms of what what they should demand and what they should not accept from corrupt elites today, because today it's not really much different than yeah. it was then. You could say Today, the only difference is that there is no Jude Caesar. Well, yeah, well, the object for which means seek wealth or power is shown by the way they use it when they have it. 
Mm-hmm. And that's the difference between Caesar's life from beginning to end and the lives of nearly every other so-called hero of our history. Caesar never sought power by the slaughter of people, nor by lying, nor by unlawful seizure and banishment of his political opponents, by violent or unlawful assumption of all power in his own person and the perpetuation of it. Audacious as he was, it was boldness governed and guided by respect for every form of law that was just and respectable. It was his intention, obviously, to rebuild the Republic of Rome without destroying it, beginning by efforts to remove its tumors and its barnacles, and then by adding great domains to its territory. But he found no help among the leaders to secure and maintain justice and fair laws, and so he took responsibility for himself. Assassination was his reward. And on that depressing note... Uh, we will leave our discussion of uh, Julius Caesar for now. We Ave may, Caesar! We may return to it uh, at some point in the future. Uh, thanks to all of our listeners and to all of our chat room chatters. Um, we'll be back next week with another show. Goodbye. Good night. <laughs>